0: This is MPN. From Los Angeles, it's the McShank Podcast on the McCarran Podcast Network. Here's Ryan and Clayton. Welcome to the McShank Podcast. Welcome in. It's been a while. It's been a while, but um, we're here we're talking about summer movies, it's the end of the summer, fall is upon us, uh, the weather's actually getting hotter, believe it or not, I don't really understand how that works, but um, there's been a lot of great movies that have come out, there's been some clunkers, uh, but uh, here to bring break it all down for us is so just a nice cross-section of the summer, um, not in studio for the first time in a while, I think. Um that was-
1: Far away from the studio as possible. Yeah,
0: I, I, I really is. I mean, it, this is an actual trans-Pacific podcast. You can welcome in my co-host Clayton Shank. Clayton, you have to tell me and the listeners where the hell are you?
1: I'm down under, mate. I'm in Gold Coast, Australia. Wow. We, we are recording this, uh, I believe. For you, it's Saturday afternoon, and for me, it is Sunday morning. So yeah, seventeen. A seventeen-hour time difference is what we're looking
0: at. Jeez! And so this is a wake up in the morning, grab a cup of Joe, scrape some Vegemite into it, stir it around, and uh, and 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 get on the old podcast blower. Oh, I, I, I I pour the Vegemite. I don't, I don't scrape it. Oh, you don't? Okay, yeah. It's already. <laughs> it's just already in your pores. It, it's just sort of becomes a thing they inject um, into you when you get off the plane, right? let me tell you
1: Vegemite exactly as advertised whatever that means to you that's ver- <laughs> that's that's
0: very oddly specific because it-
1: it, it, it's very vague, but i have a feeling whatever anybody thinks about Vegemite that's what it is
0: how how far into the trip did you have Vegemite Not well, they trip, included
1: but... it they, they included it in my welcome bag that was presented to me at the hotel when i checked in uh, it had like a cell phone to use some stuff about gold coast what you can do nightlife restaurants and some authentic Australian chocolates, as well as a little canister of Vegemite.
0: Wow! Um, they're, so they're proud of it. It's like you get yeah, off the plane. It's like if you were to get off the plane in Hawaii, and they were like, "Here's a Lay, here's some coffee, and oh, here's some poi, also." <laughs>
1: yes, right. Yes. Uh, the thing about Vegemite is it has to be used very liberally. Um, it cannot be the focus of anything you're using it on, or you're going to gag. So I recommend. A little bit of toast with a nice layer of butter on top, and then a very liberal spread of Vegemite for the best possible scenario.
0: So, I mean, what I, I know this is going to turn – I don't want this to turn into the Vegemite podcast. I'm just curious. I'm just so curious about I'm, it.
1: Although that might be interesting. I don't think it's ever been done.
0: Well, <laughs> that's true. Maybe that'll have to be for another day. but is it did that is it have health benefits like why do australians consistently just choke this stuff down i understand it's like an acquired taste it's kind of your thing as your as your nation but does it have benefits outside of like ooh, this is a very distinctly australian thing
1: it's very very uh it's infused with vitamins and it's got a little salty kind of taste to it so i think it's just used as you know, it's kind of Part of what a con- it's like a condiment, so one of many condiments to whatever you're you're eating at the time. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean it's it's not it's something they're proud of, but it's not something they're going to defend to the death either. I have a feeling.
0: So, are you allowed? Are you at liberty to say what it is you're doing down there? I know you're you're you are, you are you're there working? You're not there mm-hmm. just just traveling and tra- traversing the world, trying to ex- broaden your your horizons um are you allowed to say what it is you're working on or can we keep the, keep that a secret or what are we doing
1: yeah so i'm four and a half months in out of a seven month stretch and let's say let's say the working title is ahab and if you're savvy at all or you care you can go on google and probably figure it out in a couple minutes okay um but uh, yeah I will, I will just say it, it rhymes
0: with schmock will land okay i'll bet, you know i'm gonna have to think about that one too i think but i'll, I'll get it before the end of the show for sure um, sure. Yeah. So,
1: which also, I- I'll keep it. I'll keep it cryptic. <laughs>
0: thank you. Thank you. Yes, uh, I'm sure uh, all of the uh, major players over at Shmi Shmi also uh, <laughs> appreciate that too. Now, yeah. it's the what's the release schedule? What are the release schedules like with p- these particular movies? I know sometimes you know, obviously the, the the big release dates are the U.S. dates do those stay pretty consistent in Australia. I mean, what's your movie intake schedule been like down there?
1: Uh, so it really varies by movie. It's almost a case by case basis. So, I'm not really sure how the the studio and marketing teams determine the release dates yet, but for instance, we got Alien Covenant a week before the US Ooh. and John Wick 2 came out like 7 months after the US release date. So, I have, honestly have no idea how it works, but it, it's usually within one or two weeks of the U.S. release date.
0: Okay, so you've either, been... E- either way. So are, are, do you have, like, because when you're here in the States, I mean, you go pretty much weekly, bi-weekly to, to catch up. Are you still... Do you have time? Is there a local theater that you've been uh, traversing, or, or how's, that, how's that worked?
1: Yeah, in Australia, they have event cinemas, which are usually found in every mall. So I have one mall to the south of me, one to the north of me. that both have an event cinema, and the kind of the big uh, the, 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 the flagship cinema to go see things in is the Event Cinema Gold Class, which is kind of like the I want to say the IPIC, or it's one of these uh, theaters that has lounge chairs and table side service, that kind of a thing. It's, it's really pricey, but um, the cocktails that so you can get are really good, and the sound is good, and there are benefits to it, but it's a little pricey. Okay. Um, there's also an art house theater close by that will probably be comparable to something like uh, the Limley around Los Angeles in certain places. Okay. Uh, so there's definitely. Um,
0: there's a, a vibrant uh, film culture. A, a, there's a, a, a vibrant film going. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. It, it, it sort of sounds like it's been a seamless transition movie wise in that sense. You don't have to be searching around for it i'm sure the uh the the minister of film paul hogan uh makes it so everybody can see things. i'm just this is incredibly racist towards australian people i'm so sorry that these are the only these are my only things i'm not i'm not going to mention fosters i was trying to figure out that's not a blank this is a blank joke while you were talking i couldn't figure it out but i'm excited for you to culture me
1: that man's a national treasure
0: i yeah i believe it i believe it um, so we we kind of wanted to go chronologically a little bit, at least for the United States release. I mean, I'm guessing everything else is pretty well uh, consistent as you mentioned. Um, but one of the things we started back in May, and funny enough, it just came out on Blu-ray, and my uh, my wife picked it up. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Now we've had. Of course, an entire podcast about Marvel. We've discussed Marvel both in person and on microphone a lot. Guardians two. Um, I'm going to give you my point of view on it because we discussed it very briefly. Guardians one is my was my favorite Marvel movie. I thought that the second one was. Better and more realized than the first one, so I guess that means that the second one is now my favorite Marvel movie. Um, Just by the by, by you're
1: you're all on board for Guardians, uh, the whole series.
0: Just by the transitive property, I guess. Mm -hmm. And here's my feeling on it, and I think I enjoy it. We watched a little bit of it last night. It just for all the the shit that we give Marvel, this one still feels the furthest outside of the MCU. Like, it doesn't really belong in this tightly knit blanket of connected characters and worlds and things like that, even though they sprinkle a little bit of the, of that through that. the humor and the, I mean, just the writing in general and um, the action, I feel like stands out from the rest of the series um, within Marvel. And this one, I think, had uh, still had a a, a, a villain problem, um, the villain that wanted to take over the world. Um, yeah. But but outside, <laughs> but but the thing is, is that I know that now going in, so it surprises me when it's when when, when that doesn't happen. I'm sort of expecting that yeah. specifically with. I'm not. I'm not going to try to spoil what happens in the end if you haven't seen Guardians 2, But there is an emotional component to it that I wasn't really expecting and really appreciated and it really kind of put things in perspective um in terms of the series and in terms of the relationship with quill and his father and and all that stuff and that was just a big theme throughout throughout the entire movie and to see that to see them do what they did and have such an emotional climax and not have to worry about what they're going to be doing next uh, i thought was a real a a real winner for me
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And uh, I, when you gave me your perspective, um, I, I didn't really, I didn't really share it, but I understood it at the same time. Uh, I understood how it could work like that. Uh, <clears throat> this, this franchise is kind of the oddball, the the, 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 the weirdo in the class with everything Marvel has been doing. And um, we have talked about Marvel quite a bit, but I think it's, it's, it's worthy of discussion constantly because it's, it's kind of it's a new paradigm in Hollywood that nobody really saw coming and took a couple really successful actually one really successful film at the onset to really make it all possible with the first Iron Man so Guardians has a distinctive signature with with its color scheme with its focus on character development which isn't necessarily Marvel's strong suit uh it has um uh, a great retro soundtrack. There are many things about it that kind of set it apart and really having nothing, nothing to do with the fact that they don't interact with any of the other Marvel characters yet. Um, yeah. But yet, <laughs> we all know that's coming. Yeah. Uh, ten years later, um, from the initial setup, uh, it's, I can't believe it was a decade long arc, but that's apparently what we're going to get. Um, I. Yes, I can see how you would see it that way. I I do appreciate the focus on character development, and that is something that we don't we don't get from Marvel. And specifically with Star Lord and um, uh, Rocket, I think their rapport and character building was maybe the highlight of the movie for me. Um, just how they're they're almost like like siblings, you know. There's like a big brother little brother thing going on there, and. Uh, the Yondu thing for me is is interesting um, because I can see. I mean, you have to be blind to see that they weren't going for that big character moment at the end, that big emotional payoff. Um, for me, the movie has a very conflicted attitude about violence that kind of undercut anything that would register emotionally for me at the end. Um, I think we're we're expected to really sit through the scene about, I think it's maybe it's about midway through. I'm not sure, but it's after uh, Yondu has been uh, captured. And I think, I'm not sure who else is with him. is rocket with him. I don't, I don't remember. There's a scene in which he escapes after a very comical vignette with Groot. Mm-hmm. And, and he basically proceeds to commit mass murder. Oh yeah. On on the, on the ship. Um, and, it was very confusing to me because it was done almost in a, a Tarantino esque kind of flourish of style. Uh, you had his, uh, you know, his little whistler thing mm-hmm. just zipping around the whole of the ship, um, leaving essentially like tracer rays behind it. Uh, all set to music. They do a high frame rate. It's kind of meant to be cool and stylish, and kind of forgetting the fact that it is a mass murder and probably one that. It's very difficult to justify in my mind. Yes, he was, he was captured, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really, let's just say it, it really surprised me that that's kind of the route they took. Um, I think so that, that, point, that, but
0: so, yeah, go ahead. Finish, finish with that. Well,
1: yeah. So, so at that point um, I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, but when they try and make his single death emotional at the end, where they, they, they take the focus off of that, that basically that slaughter and it's kind of played up to a comic style. Um, and it's just, then it's just forgotten, you know, just nameless faces being just eviscerated. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: I I have trouble really, uh, absorbing the emotional connection they're going for with him at the end.
0: I guess I think that he, that they're trying to almost redeem him because it's like, it is very similar to a Tarantino moment. Um, but it, you could argue maybe like the bride is sort of an anti-hero in that way. And you're, she's you're, you're, you're trying to redeem her and she's killing all the crazy 88s in the, at the end of the first one. Um, but I kind of think that it's mostly bloodless and it's played for laughs. And that really, I mean, the Yandu was never really like a great guy. He captured Quill multiple times and, Um, so I don't, so it it didn't seem that far out of character for him. And, you know, I figure if you're going to go out, why not go out with a blaze of glory? Um, I mean, I meant leave the captivity. You may as well do that with a blaze of glory, but it didn't bug me that much because I was just so focused in on the visuals. I think, uh, it still resonated. It still had the, the, the desired effect for me. And I guess Mm -hmm. it was just something that, I've never felt I, I I never thought that I would feel the way that I did at the end of a Marvel movie uh with the end of this movie and just with with the scene leading up to that. So um yeah. so I mean so so in that sense I feel like it really accomplished what it was trying to do. The mm-hmm. the the violence didn't really bug me that much, but and I'm not saying it bugged you, but it uh it seemed justified. I, it seemed justified yeah. to me.
1: Yeah, I, I just I, I found I just kind of found the, the the approach toward violence inconsistent, so it didn't really make the the emotional payoff register for me as as much. Um, but I, I definitely you know I, I, I didn't I didn't hate this film by any means. I think it's a it's a very entertaining film. The soundtrack kicks ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I didn't wasn't expecting them to double down on character development, but that's what we get. Uh, it's it's mostly about character development. Um, especially with quill and his father Mm -hmm. um um it does succumb to i think like you alluded to the suddenly the the stakes of this film are galaxy wide and and it 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 really it just doesn't work you know like it's it's so much of the movie is so small then they try and make it so big at the end um that it just it just kind of like an eye-rolling moment for me it's like it's almost like they, they feel like because the movie's called Guardians of the Galaxy, it has to have those galaxy-wide stakes, um, when it, it really doesn't. you know, I would have much more preferred kind of a, a Captain America Civil War kind of story, where it's just really intimate and personal, and that's what we get for the most of it. But for some reason, they, they fall into that uh, uh, bigger is better trap at the end.
0: Where do you feel, and we'll wrap up Guardians, where do you feel like this... Mm-hmm. places in the other Marvel, in the Marvel universe in terms of, if, if, if you're going to rank it, where is it top five, top 10, top seven, bottom, top uh, middle, do you, where do you have you're it? Talking about
1: just, you're talking about just the MCU? Yeah. I, I I still like the first Guardians more than this movie. Um, I mean, I you know, it, it's been a while awesome since I thought about it, but uh, um, Iron Man, Civil War, you yeah, know, I'd have to think about the ranking. Okay, all it, right, it, yeah. It, 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 it's probably in the latter half of the top 10
0: Okay, So the next one I want to mention, we have... um, This one was actually... This one was a huge hit. uh, And uh, it's Wonder Woman. You've seen Wonder Woman. I I, I did. Actually, uh,
1: my production was kind enough to give us a cast and crew screening for
0: it. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, really, I think what it kind of comes down to, because I I really enjoyed it. um, And I think kind of what it really just boils down to was dceu they call it is that is that the the official terminology for it the dceu
1: which uh which like so many of the movies is clunky in and of
0: itself (laughs) yeah the the so dceu product minus Zack snyder equals competent i think that's sort of the main takeaway uh what was your takeaway from wonder woman
1: uh, I think it's without question the best movie the DCEU has put forth at this point. Again, um,
0: not saying a lot, but it you're is, right. It's not, but I,
1: I actually think this is a good movie. Uh, it's um, I, I definitely liked it more than Guardians. I haven't seen Spider-Man yet. Uh, but there's a comic book movie that's far and away my favorite that's come out this year. It's, like you said, I think it's kind of what you get when you remove Zack Snyder's just kind of inability to tell a coherent story it didn't used to be that way i'm not sure why it is now but he just has so much trouble getting any kind of narrative flow going that to see patty jenkins take over and i think this was her first movie since monster
0: yeah it's uh, that that I, amazed I, me that movie came out 13 14 years ago
1: 13 14 years ago and it's
0: Worth far the wait it's
1: not necessarily the next logical leap either no <laughs> you got the small uh budget movie where Charlize Theron is doing her, her damnedest just to look as ugly as possible. And just basically, you know, killing guys that pick her up. And then you go to the Amazonian wonder woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think there's actually some really, there's some really strong stuff in wonder woman. Um, I'm specifically thinking about a scene on a battlefield right before she charges, uh, the way it's shot and and the way her body language and her attitude is um it's 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 almost like it was almost an iconic moment for me the way the the scene plays i don't know if you remember which one i'm talking about was it the
0: uh, was it when they're in in the in the little town or was that before it's
1: where it's when they're in the trench. oh yeah uh it's she's still kind of robed up and it's before she makes her big charge yeah um something about that really struck a chord for me and I just, it's kind of registered to me as something iconic in the moment. Um, a lot of the humor I think works and I enjoyed, you know, it's, it's cliche at this point, but the fish out of water stuff, when she, when she goes to uh, the UK and, and all that. And I thought stuff on the, on the Island was all really good. Um, but what's interesting about this movie is you can pinpoint the exact second that the studio takes over. Uh, and it's probably the last, the last... 20, 30, 20, 30 minutes. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's far from seamless. Um, you got the movie going this one direction, and then all of a sudden it's you know twenty minute explosions and light show kind of a scene. It's it it just reeks of studio te- uh, tampering and interference, um, and doesn't really it isn't really consistent with how the story's been told so far, and is uh, clearly the worst part about the movie, but. Leading up until that, I think it's a lot of strong stuff. What did you think?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I uh, The women that I've talked to who have seen it, the main takeaway, just because that's been an interesting perspective sort of for me, is hearing the perspective of the women who, who I know who have seen it, and they felt just like, okay, I get it why men want to be all the superheroes that they see on screen all the time. Because yeah. it is just so empowering, and she just kicks so much ass with, but still uh, being very smart and never really stooping down to the the typical cliched um, female hero in movies, which yeah. I really appreciated. Um, I mean, it's almost as if the things that she wears, and you know, the, the, those those tropes that they had in this movie were almost played as a gag, almost almost like a parody of what a superhero movie would have been. um, Had it not, had it not been in that particular, had it not been in those hands. Um, But yeah, I mean the, the, the non-relationship sort of relationship friendship between her and Steve Trevor, I feel like is a major factor in my enjoyment of it because they fight together like equals really. Um, and even she's I mean, she obviously kicks way more ass than him, um, but it's not played as if like, oh, a man's going to come in and save you and a man is going to come in and do this. Like, no, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to I'm going to be the independent woman that I know I can be and that I was raised to be. Um, so it's a fish out of water. But but I like her perspective on. Uh, on the ideas between battling and men and women and stuff like that, um, more than I would like the ones <laughs> in nineteen twenties or thirties, forties America, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the I think the period piece aspect of it really did the movie a great service. It's just it's just a much different palette to be uh, digesting while you're watching. And um, yeah, a lot of the a lot of her actions in this movie, I mean, she even verbalizes them at some points uh, are just a, a direct repudiation of all those male tropes we're so accustomed to. And the fact that she has a, you know, she has a male love interest in this and it just, it really just takes the whole formula and kind of spins it on, spins it on its head. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy this movie worked because obviously there are much less female heroes to draw on and, and even fewer that are in the same class as Wonder Woman, just in terms of notoriety and, and brand name recognition, you know, and I mean, what's after Wonder Woman? That's like, that's even in that league, like Supergirl? Maybe, Uh,
0: but I mean, mean, yeah, Supergirl, Batgirl, but yeah, there aren't many.
1: I mean, so it took, you know, if you, if you start at X-Men, which was in 2000, or if you want to, you can even go earlier with Blade or Tim Burton's Batman's or whatever you want, but um it's, you know if if you want to start at the modern superhero age in 2000 it it took 17 years for a female to lead her own film in this uh in this uh genre this, this subgenre which is kind of amazing that the studios really didn't think that you know a good half of the their population wouldn't appreciate that much sooner
0: yeah and the <laughs> um, fact that this movie made way more than any other DCEU movie Really, kind of hammers that fact home. I mean, by the end of it, she wasn't like a female hero. She was a hero. Like, she was just, yeah. she was just, she stood astride with Batman and Superman and Spider Man, all these other characters. And it didn't matter that she was a woman. It just mattered that she kicked ass and saved the day. And this was even a follow up. And I, this was sort of expected from her scenes in Batman versus Superman because. Those they were the best
1: part of that they movie. They
0: were the absolute best parts. And a, a lot of it is the character, but a lot of it is also Gal Gadot. And the way that she just sort of harnesses the, the power of the character and exudes this confidence and exudes this, this power, it really added something that that movie was really lacking. And it was awesome to see her throughout an entire film and really carry it and absolutely nail it. Because now you just can't even think of anybody else who could play the role. I mean, she's just taken complete no, control no, of it, and you go, hers. "Oh well, of course it's her. Of course it's Gal Gadot. Yeah, of course it is. Absolutely." Oh, it's it's hers. Yeah, like she she owned it. So what's the uh, what's the next one you want to uh, you want that's in your brain that you think you want to talk about?
1: Um, we go to Dunkirk.
0: Dunkirk. Did you see it in seventy millimeter? No. Okay.
1: No, there's one option in 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 the entire state of Queensland to see it in 70, and it was uh, a little too much of a driving commitment to go for but You wouldn't. I
0: would love to. You would. You wouldn't do it for Christopher Nolan. You you struggled <laughs> with that. Really... I hope you struggled with the decision at least.
1: I I did struggle with the decision. Um, I I did. Yes. Okay.
0: So my opinion is that the. I cannot imagine seeing this movie in any other format. So I'm sorry to say, <laughs> uh, because,
1: I, well, let me, let me, let me cut you off there. Cause I did see it in this format they have here called V max, which is probably the closest approximation to 70. I mean, it was a big screen. Okay. So, so, so you big, did see it yeah. big. Yeah. I, it, I, I did see it big, but I did not see it. 70.
0: Okay. Well, that's um, fine. Yeah. I, I, I think it's just the, 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 the large screen format of it that, really makes it happen for me because when we saw it in that format the sound and just the 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 crystal clear uh, of the picture i mean most of it is shot in you know basically filling up this entire screen Mm -hmm. and just being able to have a sense of the flights and the ships and the enclosed spaces as well i just cannot imagine seeing it on a screen that's not gigantic that Mm -hmm. said it's probably in the lower half of Nolan's movies for me. It still is great. I mean that that's not taking anything away. It's sort of like asking what your favorite breath of air is. It's like, well, it's the <laughs> whatever one that gets me the next one. That's that's a Seinfeld joke. That's not actually mine. But um, no. So so my my that that's sort of just my initial feel of it. There is, it it's just a masterful storytelling. It's masterful. Filmmaking. I think this probably is the year that he at least is nominated for Best Director. I think that this movie and maybe like Blade Runner would probably be jostling for fa- uh, Best Cinematography at the Academy Awards. There, there just wasn't as much of an emotional resonance as, say, Interstellar or Inception um, or even any you know any of the the, the Batman finale as well. So. Mm-hmm it's tough for me to give it like a ringing endorsement. Like absolutely. But it's still like an eight and a half out of 10, but most of his movies are nine and nine and a half and 10. What was your, what were your uh, thoughts on it and how did it resonate sort of with you?
1: Dunkirk was a very, it was kind of a fascinating theatrical experience because it's, you're right in saying that it's probably one of the most emotionally disconnecting films we've seen from him. Uh, but for me, there's something very paradoxical about the movie. Just when you're talking about emotion, because I think by design it's supposed to be almost free, free of narrative. Uh, it's you know you have some kind of loose tethering to characters as you're going through the story in its various timelines, but you don't really get attached to anybody and Nolan's entire goal here is to set up an immersive experience. Uh, he wants you to feel like, not like you're watching somebody on Dunkirk, but you. he wants you to feel like you're at Dunkirk, which it was a really interesting stylistic choice and really risky. Um, I can't imagine many other directors spare James Cameron, you know, maybe Spielberg, just. I don't know who gets this much money to make this
0: movie yeah. these days. It's very art, um, it's, it, it has a lot of art house elements to it which is sort of an interesting throwback to his early days with following and everything like that.
1: Yeah, it, it's I as soon as I walked out of it one of my first thoughts was this is not going to do well domestically. Hmm. Um and not necessarily speaking to the quality it's just it's it's just uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Abstract. Um, it's 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 dense, kind yeah. of. Um, it's it's a very hard movie to penetrate, and for the casual moviegoer, I think there might be a lot of confusion because he. I mean, you could just start with the timeline aspect,
0: uh, right? Which took a little bit of getting used to, and I think you needed to have a stronger grasp on it for there to have more of an emotional, and, and like for <laughs> there to be more emotion later on in the film. And so it, yeah. it was, and I sort of understood, I got it, but then, and and part of what I really loved about it was attacking the story from so many different angles and then filling in bits of pieces of the gaps, almost sort of like memento almost, where the, the, as the story unfolds more, it's a linear story, but it's being told from so many different spots that, okay, now we're filling in this part of it. Now we're filling in this part of it. And it really felt like just a master craft of, you know, storytelling, really.
1: Yeah. Well, he kind of, Took a lot of criticisms he got about Interstellar, where there was just a ton of exposition, and he constantly had these scientists explicating their their thoughts and the plan. And he got derided a lot for kind of how reliant on exposition the movie was. And he kind of goes the exact opposite direction here, just a complete 180 to the other extreme, where there's almost no dialogue here. There's there's some dialogue you get, and you know some kind of rapport-building moments, but it is about as bare-bones a script as you can really imagine in a movie of this scope. I mean, I think I I read that Nolan was initially planning on just shooting without a script and just uh, doing a lot of the uh, lines improvised. I think he did eventually come up with a a bare-bones script, but it's about as minimalist as you can get for especially a wartime setting. It's, I was speaking about the emotional element earlier and I kind of got diverted, but I wanted to touch on it. Um, it is a very disconnecting movie. Like I said, it's, it's really hard to relate to emotionally because you're not really invested in any of the characters and it's kind of just a experiential thing. You're there, you're in a moment with them and then it's over. Uh, but interestingly, there's not really that moment you get in a lot of war movies that is even seeking emotion or it's making a play at emotion. Um, You know, I'm thinking of like the Saving Private Ryan prologue and epilogue that's set at the cemetery Mm -hmm. where, where it's clearly going for emotion there and for better or worse. I mean, I have have no problem. I think they,
0: yeah, they definitely earned it.
1: But a scene like that is definitely, going for the heartstrings and this movie maybe spare some stuff in the epilogue where, you know, you're kind of coming home on the train, the train and they start reading the newspaper. None of that's really here. It never in one instance is seeking your, 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 your sympathy or your emotion. Um, something about that was actually emotional to me.
0: (laughs) The lack of emotion Um, was emotional.
1: It was the fact that it wasn't asking for it kind of made it more emotional in some respects, which is why I, I, I use the word paradoxical. Um, uh, the the scene that really got me um, again, you know, if you're listening and you haven't seen Dunkirk and you don't want some of the the image or spoiled, uh, turn away now. But I'm just going to go into it. It's the scene where Tom Hardy's character is basically just gliding uh through the air as he is completely out of gas and uh he, he, there's this this one shot where he's he's pretty much coming in and swoop in and save the day and then he's essentially just gliding toward the beach you know and it's the sound and music has largely been stripped away and something about that image really got me and i, and I don't know what about it but it was just such a a poetic masterstroke. Um, I, I really have a hard time articulating it, but something about it really got me.
0: When this movie was coming out, uh, it really started to stoke my brain about. Stoke my brain? My brain fires. It started to stoke my brain <laughs> fires. I'll allow it. Thank you. With uh, sort of, you know, having to rank the Nolan movies. And not only, obviously, I hadn't seen this movie yet. It is incredibly difficult to figure it out. Because there is inevitably going to be something... And this is going to... Now... Clayton, you told t- people to turn away, uh, if you didn't want different imagery of Dunkirk spoiled. Well, now we're uh, probably going to, uh, fillet Christopher Nolan for the next couple of minutes. So if that makes you uncomfortable, you can go ahead and turn it off now. Um,
1: <laughs> but, but, but not like a shameless fanboy. We're way above, we're, no, we're no, above absolutely.
0: You no, should know no, better. If you're listening to this show, you should know better, frankly, that we're not just shameless fanboys.
1: We, I am more than happy to criticize Christopher Nolan whenever I see fit, but I do happen to like most of his movies.
0: Yes. So, my biggest point of contention was what do you put as number two? Cause I feel like across the board, you could pick a number one pretty easily, but like your two and your three slots are like really frankly impossible. And when I was thinking about it, when I was really mulling it over and talking to people, you could almost put any other one of his movies in there and make a case for every single <laughs> one of his movies being the mm-hmm. second best Christopher Nolan movie. I eventually, because number one is The Dark Knight for me, but the number two, mm-hmm. I landed on Inception, and it is so tenuous, and it is so just like, you could talk me out of that in a heartbeat, and I, you could put any other movie in there. Have you right. thought about his movies, and have you thought about it in that yeah. sense? Like how, how how you rank them? Because I think yeah, it's an I interesting question to also I've see. Done, yeah, yeah, I think it's an interesting question also like, to sort of see where this movie fits in with that ranking as well.
1: Yeah, uh, I'd have to really lay out the movies in front of me just for a visual to see what I was prepared to sacrifice and you know, in the in the hopes of rank. But um, I think my top three for me is. Uh, the Dark Knight, Memento, and The Prestige. Um, I think those are his three, his three strongest films to date. Uh, in terms of consistency of vision, emotional resonance, you know, in Dark Knight's case, sheer adrenaline. Um, I think those are his three most satisfying movies as, as a whole, at least for me. But, like you said, I mean, there's just a case to be made for almost everything. He's yeah. Done in terms of... Uh, it's it's a very difficult ranking. I mean, it'd be like trying to rank Fincher's movies. It's the same thing. Like, like, what what do you do? Like, what's so like? Much, there's so much good stuff there.
0: What's what's not the best, but like almost the best? It's like, well, I don't know. Like, maybe this, maybe that. Like, I mean, it just. It's so it it became so difficult, and it was and it was just interesting. It almost can be its own podcast, probably. I think, and who knows? Maybe I mean, maybe it even, will be. <laughs> even, yeah,
1: I mean, even even his quote unquote weakest movies like Insomnia, um, those are still very satisfying, solidly crafted psychological thrillers. You know, like those are nothing to scoff at either. Um, and, and following for basically a movie he did on the weekends uh, is incredibly competently done and and there's just there's so many things in that movie that are just a a siren call for things that will become staples later in his career so even even following for how much little attention it gets is a pretty damn good first movie with very little resources
0: that kind of thing could be done over the weekend (laughs) anyway Um, so I want to move on to, uh, cause I, I, I want to move on to War for the Planet of the Apes, uh, cause I know that's one that you specifically wanted to talk about. Uh, Before we do that, yeah. um,
1: with, uh, with Dunkirk, I did want to wrap it up again with the, speaking of the timelines, because that was probably the most challenging aspect of this film. I think for kind of the average movie goer. Because Inception, at least, there's a lot of dialogue where they you can kind of they kind of explain what's going on, which again is a criticism that's hindered Nolan throughout his career. But there's at least enough dialogue for you to for the world that the movie's living in to be absorbed faster. Whereas Dunkirk, I mean, Nolan literally tells you in the beginning of the movie the three different timelines, and I still did it didn't really click for me until. A good halfway through the movie, maybe, maybe even three quarters of the way through the movie.
0: I think when you um, saw Killian Murphy in the water uh, mm-hmm. towards the end is when it really clicked in for me. I was like, "Oh, that makes sense now."
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. When you got the stuff on the beach. You know, there there's, there are scenes that happen at night, mm-hmm. and, and you realize some time is passing, but is. It, it, it's it's so nolan you know just like that kind of a, a timeline and to mix up the war genre that that drastically um i think like you said it's has a lot of uh hallmarks of an art film and it may just be one of the biggest art films ever put to canvas uh, just in the way it's told and the sparsity of dialogue it's it's a movie that i find it hard to love but i admire point
0: of it yeah it's so definitely it's that way. and it's and, and it's not anything that it's going to be seen especially it come summertime i mean that this is not the time for those types of movies and he released it now it was bold and you you know what it's actually made a good of a chunk of change so um mm-hmm. good job uh for everybody to going and seeing it so uh moving on to war of the planet of the apes the right. um the, the the final wrap up in this uh unexpectedly quality trilogy kind of an unexpected thing it's it's yeah, the best
1: franchise we never knew we wanted
0: yeah it's it, it's a very odd it started off very odd because you have james franco leading your almost a remake of this of, of this movie that would have come out 30 40 years ago uh, but it turned into this just very emotionally satisfying I
1: mean, honestly like shakespearean epic
0: yeah Uh, Completely out of the blue. Completely out of the blue. And then only escalated that uh, with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes now taking it even a step further and giving us the dystopian future and now capping it off uh, with War for the Planet of the Apes. Um, My initial thought on it is it's the weakest of the three. Um, And my... Going into it, I didn't really have many expectations. I you know, I, I knew I wanted to see it just to cap it off the trilogy, and I knew that it was going to have a decent amount of quality. But I felt like there was a lot of meandering. I kind of felt it was a little bit too long. It was maybe like 30 to 40 minutes too long. Um, mm-hmm. The CGI is still top-notch amazing, uh, but I just didn't think that there was enough outside of what they did in dawn for the planet of the apes in this one um to make it maybe stand out as like this is now the end and this is the you know we're leading up to this particular large battle and giant battle it, it felt a little underwhelming to me but uh but that's uh one man's opinion and i know that mm-hmm. that's not widely held um mm-hmm. by members of uh the film watching community i'm guessing you have uh, a different take
1: yeah, uh, Rise was was such a novelty. I mean, because we'd seen great monkey effects before, great monkey motion capture with like King Kong, but I mean, this was next level stuff when Rise of the Planet of the Apes came out, and uh, Andy Serkis's performance was was tremendous, and you really you really believed every ape you saw on screen, and you just kind of took it for granted after a while, and that feeling was just extrapolated into the other chapters of this saga. Uh, for me uh with with a couple glaring caveats um war might be my most favorite of all the three um but might be the most favorite might be my favorite of all the three um there's something about it that i was honestly just gobsmacked by how bleak it was uh it's it's the most bleak somber melancholy hundred and fifty million dollar movie I think I've ever seen. (laughs) And maybe that's Uh, why
0: it it, it didn't it it, it felt that that aspect of it felt cold to me almost.
1: It's 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 absolutely a cold film, both in setting and in and in feeling. Yeah. Uh, it's um, I think what I appreciated so much about it was just on on a pure storytelling note, the just the character arc of Caesar, I think, is 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 just remarkable, and it's it's I think it's one of the best character arcs in the twenty first century, like, to date. Um, I, I he's a tremendously sympathetic, complicated, and ultimately uh, tragic figure. Um, there's just every little nuance on his face, as captured by circus and incredibly animated by the visual effects team. I might have to throw that one in there. Um, you would uh, because the visual effects team often gets uh, uh, shortcut uh, these days, but um, it was just remarkable and and they don't shy away from anything. I mean, there are so many close-ups of orangutans and just, you know, and and Caesar and his his gorillas. I mean, the visual effects are just incredible and it's really hard to imagine how they could get better at this point uh, because there's a there's a shot in this movie where an ape carrying an assault rifle jumps onto a horse and rides away, and I did not think twice about it.
0: You just go, oh yeah, that makes sense in this in this movie, of course. Yeah, no, uh, you're absolutely I like, right. I
1: was like, I was like, yep, believe it. It's good.
0: Hundred <laughs> percent, I'm on board.
1: Uh, yeah, um, I I think what they were able to do with Caesar is was something is something truly remarkable, and I, I will say that the Woody Harrelson character is a little problematic for me. Um, I think he, I think too much of the movie rests on his shoulders unfairly. Um, And he does his best, but it may have just been too much. And it was a, it, it was definitely a curious decision to take this movie from kind of the sprawling war epic that we thought we were going to get. And, actually turning inward into more of a prison movie. Um, it was an interesting narrative turn, and I, I didn't really see it coming. Um, but Matt Reeves, who took over, um, I think, for, for Rupert Wyatt after Rise of the Planet of the Apes to helm the last two movies, he is so attentive to character and emotion, and just these, these little moments, you know, that, that these little character moments that register so much more than anything action-related that that He tries to pull off. I mean, there's one you know decent gunfight in the beginning and the the big action sequence at the end. But there are a lot of stretches that are exclusively relying on just how you sympathize with and relate to the characters and and just I don't know something about it really cast a spell for me and it, it might just be my favorite of all three.
0: I think the CGI or the visual effects aspect of it you almost sort of take for granted and maybe that's an unfair criticism, but it's just been so good for so long that seeing that particular aspect of it, it doesn't really grasp my interest in that sense. I mean, it maybe that, you know, again, maybe that's unfair, but that's just sort of my, my thing. I can
1: totally see that. It's so convincing that you take it for granted, and it stops being the strong suit of the movie.
0: Right. And, and the movie itself, you mentioned it being sort of a prison movie. It's almost as if, the action sequences and the battle sequences in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes maybe could have been in this movie because it was a a big narrative shift and a big, bold uh, choice to confine your characters for as long as they are confined and not give them Mm -hmm. the free reign of this world that they've created. And um, I I also like what you said about the character of Caesar because his conflicts... Throughout the basically the whole series, but especially in this one, about not wanting to, like not wanting to sink to violence in order to, like, he doesn't really know if he wants to battle the humans or if he wants to work with the humans. He doesn't know who oh, to. It's tr- a total He doesn't know who to true. trust. He doesn't know within his own within his own species and out of the species mm-hmm. and this woman. He's got to do this that, and it was just so. Oh, it's
1: a very yeah. It's a very human, uh, very human conflict. You know, it's um, it's like he's in—he's obviously in the business of self-preservation, but he's trying just to make the right moves. I mean, he would rather—he would rather live in harmony with the humans if possible. But increasingly, it keeps getting—the ball keeps getting thrown in his court where he where he has to respond, and you can just see all of that play out on his face so vividly.
0: And the fact that he just—he didn't ask to be created first but just by virtue of being the first and being the furthest along in terms of his development just became a leader and now he's thrust into this leadership position and you could tell that he maybe struggles with that as well he maybe doesn't like the fact that he has to lead this entire group and make these kinds of decisions so that aspect mm-hmm. of it, I, I, really do, I really do like and, and, and appreciate. But I just thought there was a lot of being locked up, and there was a lot of walking, and there was a, I just felt like there was a little bit too much of that. It didn't need to be two hours and 20 minutes. It could have been a really tight either hour 50 or two hours, and I feel like I would have mm-hmm. maybe enjoyed it the same, if not a little bit more.
1: Okay. Yeah, I was, I was pretty comfortable living in this world. The, uh, the run runtime didn't bother me uh, too much there. But, um, okay. Yeah, I think uh, um, whether wherever it falls for you on the spectrum, I think uh, absolutely a satisfying conclusion to the greatest series we never knew we needed or wanted.
0: Yeah, and who knows where they go from here? I I, I don't think more of the story needs to be told, but um, no. the box office. I mean, really... they,
1: it, it's like a Toy Story three to me. You know, it's like they will inevitably make a four because they're Disney and Pixar, but they don't need to. It's done. No. You know, like the the story arc is finished.
0: You did it. Um... So our our I guess our our last movie that we want to sort of bring up to highlight and sort of put a pin on this uh, summer movie is uh, Edgar Wright's latest movie, Baby Driver, which I'm assuming I'm assuming you've seen. I have. That's why we that's why we were the best in the business because we talk about movies that we have both seen. <laughs> um, they don't call them the best podcasters in the on the face of the planet for nothing. Um,
1: yes, yes uh, and we, we we conveniently leave out the movies we both haven't seen oh yeah uh, the audience audience is none the wiser
0: and that's what comes with years of of doing this we may not do it as frequently as we like but we've been doing it for long enough we know these things these are thing A, podcasting 101 um so I have a surprise for you Clayton
1: oh please I love love surprises ooh (laughs) Ooh.
0: Um, (laughs) I, I have seen this movie five times
1: Holy shit! Yeah. Okay. Well, you obviously
0: hated it. It was the worst. Um, uh, slash.
1: What? Is, is, wait. What's yeah. your record? Uh, my
0: record is six. For Phantom Menace. And
1: right, I wish I hadn't have asked you that. Yeah. But your record, is, <laughs> well, your record is six. Okay.
0: My record is six. Thinking about thinking about maybe just tying it with this, but. Uh, Once we saw it the first time, it was like, all right, well, we have to go see it again very soon after that. And then we saw it again with the friend. And then it was like, okay, because Casey's record was four. And so I think that she wanted to and not that I was like not 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 that I was against it, but her record was four with um, the first Pirates movie. And wait, so
1: so she she saw this five times as
0: well. Yeah. Yeah. We both have seen it five times. It it was Pirates one and funny enough, Jackass two were her like <laughs> the ones that she'd seen the most. So she was like, I have to see this movie more times than I've seen Jackass 2 in the theater and I was like, I'm right there with you, done. And I think the main reason for that is because honestly not since The Dark Knight, I think it it hasn't had this sort of resonance pop culture wise with me since that movie. I immediately felt like I needed to see it again. I immediately felt like I needed to buy a t-shirt of it. I immediately felt like I needed to get a get the soundtrack and just soak up everything I could. um, Because this is a film that I feel like will be talked about in film classes and discussed and dissected and looked at for years and years and years because of just how technical everything is and just how perfectly everything sort of fits together music-wise and i mean cuz that is sort of my entry point to an emotional resonance with the movie is music um mm-hmm. both the score and the soundtrack i feel like my some of my favorite and more most emotional points of of movies have come with either score or come as a result of of, of a soundtrack and so for me to have an entire movie that is basically running concurrently with a soundtrack, and to basically build your movie it's around a, those two I aspects.
1: Mean, I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's almost a musical, right? I mean, it really like, is. I mean, it's without a music, it's a musical set to a soundtrack.
0: Yeah, and and they and and to to have that. Just means that you're gonna hit a home run with me, and then you put, and then you also put John Hamm in your movie, and it's like, well, okay, obviously, of course. Um, so there are just we
1: we'll, 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 uh, we'll to John Hamm.
0: There are just so many points of there are just so many points along the way that are just absolute pure bliss. And uh, it's my favorite movie of the year and uh, my Mm -hmm. favorite, obviously my favorite movie of the summer. So uh, go ahead and uh, talk to me about how you didn't think uh, the character change at the end wasn't uh, (laughs) so big. Here's here's the funny thing. I was thinking about it beforehand and I'm like, I'll be honest. I was a little bit nervous. I was talking to Casey about it. I was talking to my wife about it. And I was a little bit nervous to talk to you because I feel I don't want to be like, well, here's what I thought. This was wrong and this was wrong. I'm like, no, but it's so good, though. You know, like I just want to be like, no, can I just can I just think it's it's amazing just to myself and stuff and and not and, and Ryan, without completely Ryan, knowing.
1: Ryan I, I, Ryan, I would never call your taste stupid in a public
0: forum. <laughs> okay, great. But just face to face, man to man, <laughs> not not in front of a microphone you would, but that's fine. Of course,
1: um, of course. so yes. uh that, I mean that's what that's what friends do
0: of course um, of course so so give me your thoughts no, I, I want to know
1: no I, I I like this film um, I I don't need I don't feel the need to see it again anytime soon but I I did like this movie quite a bit um, I think where I have issues with it is more um, it's it's more just narrative choices and kind of you know, if if you're like reading one of those choose-your own adventure books, I would rather pick an adventure that leads me somewhere else as as opposed mm. to where this movie takes it. Okay. Um, but I think we could probably agree. I mean, I would be surprised if you don't agree. But the first scene is by far the strongest scene in the movie. Um, for, uh, for, for me at least.
0: Okay. There's that. That is, I and I've thought about this and had conversations about this, of course, because it's it's just been my whole life for the last three months. But but the
1: first scene is almost a short film in and of its
0: own. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, the idea for that basically is sort of how this movie, this sort of the genesis of the, of the story, of, of the idea for the movie, comes from this particular song that Edgar mm-hmm. Wright heard. He actually made a short film very similar to that with this song in it, a music video, and he mm-hmm. sort of had this idea kicking around in his brain, and it was because of that Bell Bottom song that he was able to um, – you know, basically get this movie made, but that scene is amazing. It's tied closely to the hocus pocus scene uh, with the, with the <laughs> song, because there's just, and I'm talking about the scene when the heist goes wrong at the, uh, at the postal service at the post office yeah. from, from when they get out of the car to, you know, all the running and all the driving and that scene, that is, I think, I mean, one of the most thrilling action sequences and it's just people running and moving around and, but the music, you know, obviously oh, know. kicks God, ass God, with it. Just
1: a, a, a solidly filmed foot chase. Where have you been all my life? Like those are just, those are such a dying breed these days.
0: Yeah. So, so I, so I do agree. I, I will say the f- opening scene is, is the strongest because it just, it really just puts you into this world and it sets you up totally for what you're going to be seeing throughout the rest of the movie. And
1: so, so I think it's a double edged sword because I, well, I think the, the the first scene is the strongest. I think it also, the movie kind of dips after it because of it, but <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, but, um, I think the rest of the movie has trouble living up to how good the first scene is. But um, yeah, I mean, I I did like this movie. Uh, I think it was the next logical extension for Edgar Wright to basically make a movie that's one long music video um, because his Chris Cornetto, Cornetto trilogy. Especially, um, God, even even Scott Pilgrim. Now that I think about it, the cutting is already so rhythmic and frenetic that you could see it being uh, transposed just as easily to a piece of music, you know. Um, and he quite literalizes it with Baby Driver. He's literally cutting to music in uh, in many of the scenes. Um, oh,
0: the the entire movie. I mean, the entire movie if is basically shot like the music is being played within the scene or diegetically. Um, The, uh, so Uh,
1: are you sure? Are you sure it wasn't the sujet? No, it wasn't
0: (laughs) that, that phrase I use correctly. I use that term correctly. Um, But, but, but the whole, and that's why I sort of think that it's such a study in editing and in, I mean, uh, sound design and everything is because of just how much attention is paid. I mean, that whole, even the scene right after the opening heist scene where he's just walking to get coffee, it's a four, four or five minute unbroken shot is yep. the same thing. And it and the more, actually the more times you watch it and the more times you see it, the more you pick up on it. I think you, seeing it for me the first time I was like, Oh, that's cool. That's nice. Oh, look, the words are spray painted on there. That's a nice little touch. And then as you see it more and more, I mean, I literally heard things the fifth time that i did not hear the first time i mean that's just how layered and just how much attention Mm -hmm. to detail it is and 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 and,
1: through through the rest of the film is there because i I remember that thing when you're talking about where like the lyrics are suddenly on the wall behind him to the for the song you know yeah um is that continued throughout the movie because i think they i thought they kind of dropped off doing that
0: no, they, no. That I think that's just a first. I think that was just kind of a "Hey, look what we can do" sort of thing. And like and again, like
1: kind of like an opening flourish, kind
0: of right a- after your first opening flourish. So you have two opening flourishes, I guess. But yeah, uh, right. Yeah, but so and and I mean, and it's interesting because it's sort of made me. I I we watched Scott Pilgrim vs the World recently, and there are just things in that where something as something you've seen a million times, just a cut or uh, a two shot or flashing back and forth between two characters. I mean, that is so interesting and there's nothing even really going on in these scenes. But what Edgar Wright is able to do is draw out interest with people looking at each other or with someone doing something very, very menial. He's able to get you to care about what's happening and, and, really connect you to and keep you engaged in the story. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's an absolute, it's an absolute masterpiece.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I I actually, I would probably put his um, three films with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost ahead of this one. I, something about those work better for me. Maybe it's the, it's the the dynamic between Pegg and Frost that kind of elevates them. But I, I definitely like this movie more than Scott Pilgrim. I probably put it somewhere in the, in the middle of his, Filmography. filmography. Um, I think the you know the style in this movie is just second to none. It's just a masterclass, like you were saying. Um, I, I think for me, where I start to have issues with it is more of a narrative turn of events as opposed to a style one. I I think first of all, Jamie Foxx does not get enough credit for being a cold, sadistic bastard
0: in this movie, or um, in or in real life. It, it,
1: it, in this, like, just his potential to act that way. Um, because he is terrifying in this movie, um, like like I my skin just crawled. I mean, he's he's just like a powder cake. You know, you yeah. never know when you, when he's going to go off or when he's speaking to you in a in a hostile aggressive manner. You don't know how tongue in cheek it is. Like, could he really just start shooting you after? His his latest, you know, <laughs> his latest heist. Aggressive, yeah, a, a, aggressive, aggressive comment. Like he always just seems like he's just about to snap.
0: Well, there's that yeah. there, there there's that scene there that just that when uh, John Hamm and Baby or when Buddy and and Baby are listening to Queen, and. Mm-hmm. John, and they starts telling all the stories about, oh, I got enough demons in here to last me a lifetime or en- enough things up here to, to, to last that. He goes, uh, he goes hey, does, so does everybody in your story end up dead? And he goes, well, I guess you have to wait to find out. And that's exactly what you're saying. You're going, uh, is he going to murder everybody at the end and just take all the money for himself? Like, it's just, well, so yes, yeah. I yeah.
1: Mean, we'll, well, relating to that, I'm not sure if you noticed. I'm sure you have see, having seen it five times, you had to have noticed this. But John Burnfall. Uh, He is in the first scene And he's He's uh, appropriately crazy I mean He looks like you know A Sid Vicious version of the Punisher Um, He uh, He makes a little quip Walking out of the elevator um, Which is the last time that we see him Mm -hmm. uh, Where he says You know if you don't see me again I'm probably dead
0: Yep Right
1: And we never see him again And
0: then he never Yeah he never shows back up again (laughs)
1: So he's—he probably died. <laughs> yeah. And that was just—that was a really nice little narrative kind of meta-meta stroke there that I really appreciated. But anyway, uh, I think yeah, Jamie Foxx is a huge asset to this film because he's just so uh, believably terrifying. And I think where there's where Wright makes a misstep with the story is. We're, again, we're definitely gonna get into spoilers here, because I have to just to talk about this. Where Wright makes a misstep, I think, is leaving the the climactic scenes to John Hamm as opposed to Jamie Foxx. I think when he takes Jamie Foxx out early and in I have to say, a shocking fashion. I don't think anybody saw that coming. So it definitely worked in terms of a hey, gotcha kind of moment, like I did but you didn't think he was gonna die. Um I I feel like that put much of the burden on John Hamm to suddenly become a scary presence. Uh and I I, I just don't think Ham was really up to the task there. It just it didn't work for me. And I would have much rather Jamie Foxx's character been, I guess you could say, spared to the end. Because that's really where most of the tension was the whole movie. And I, I just I did not get as much from John Hamm doing his kind of his psycho routine. I, I just don't think it's really his strong suit. Whereas Jamie Foxx was, he was just a presence. Whenever he was on screen, you're just, your skin crawled. Um, I, I would have much rather Jamie Foxx been the, the target of the climactic scene because it would have had so much more tension.
0: Yeah. And I, and that would have been, I, I, I feel like that, that would have been a, an interesting choice. Um, but you know what? It didn't bug me. It it didn't bother me. I mean, maybe because I'm being blinded by my love of John Hamm. But, um, <laughs> but 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 I, I I do think it works because he is. This is all sort of coming from and stemming from the death of uh, his girlfriend in the movie. And so I think that there is that within him, and I think he draws it out in his direct and, and directing it towards baby and having them have this relationship. Early on in the movie to then turn it on its ear and flip that. I mean, it's a pretty common trope, but I kind of feel like building them up and then breaking it down um, because he has a He has a very just a bubbling under the surface sort of hatred, I think, and just sort of this just this real villain. Because, I mean, you talk about John Bernthal. You can't be in crime without having a little criminal in you. And so for as nice and as charming as Buddy is, he does still have to, when the chips are down, go into the self-preservation mode and absolutely has to go after Baby and and become this sort of villain. And I mean, it, I, I'm i all on board for a Jamie Foxx climax as well. Um, that sounds weird, mm-hmm. but like a climactic scene, <laughs> climactic... Uh, uh, section, (laughs) right. A climactic section at the end with, uh, with Jamie Foxx and John Hamm. I feel like it would have been a a very interesting, uh,
1: I I think Wright definitely leaves the appropriate trail of breadcrumbs for that character arc to make sense where, like you said, he sets it up enough in advance where you see that kind of bubbling under the surface with the Hamm character and maybe the psycho just residing just below skin level. Um, but I just, I think I just kind of, I just I do I didn't Ham just didn't sell it for me. Like, okay, I just, so was like, the
0: performance and not necessarily the, where he went with it.
1: Yeah, I mean because he Wright sets it up and that there's that potential in his character really early, so I'm not going to fault him for taking the character there at the end because it's established. But I think the the Ham performance just, I have really a hard time seeing him as. A hate-filled psychopath. Mm. Um, I just, I just don't so I think as an actor he he, he quite pulled it off.
0: Because yeah, because I was going to say uh, with it, 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 nar- n- narratively, if you're talking about Jamie Foxx being the the villain towards the end as opposed to John Hamm, narratively it feels very safe because Bats is this bad guy and just this horrible person who will kill at a moment's notice, pretty much the whole movie, and so you can mm-hmm. sort of think, yeah, he. Might be this big bad in the end, so it wouldn't have really surprised us. I think right. by I, I think by flipping it, he was able to to subvert our our expectations and and give it that yeah. extra oomph and that extra weight. I think that it that it needed.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a tricky spot to be in because if he does if he doesn't do if he doesn't flip it on its head and make Ham the the central antagonist at the end, uh, you know, um, yeah, I guess I can see it both ways because if he Having Fox be at the end would be the safe call, um, but it would also make the most sense uh, dramatically. Um, but Ham is an interesting diversion of the of the narrative, but it also undercuts some of the tension for me. So it's kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of decision. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think uh, in, in terms of actually just heightening the the drama of the of the climactic scene, it would have done more for me with Jamie Foxx there. But it's not a a minor quibble by, by, minor by, by any means minor uh, quibble it, it was just the most obvious thing i had trouble with in an otherwise um uh expertly crafted uh action thrower
0: yeah well this has been fun i'm glad we got a chance to talk we haven't really chatted uh since you've been over there i know you've been you've been working hard but uh i'm happy that you're able to come on i'm happy you're able th- that an, even a, the an ocean as big as the pacific can't keep us apart
1: <laughs> yes yes the transcontinental podcast is officially a thing and i hope we get to do more of
0: it yeah i agree and you'll be back the end of october you told me but uh, maybe we'll try to fit in another episode maybe before then because this was uh this was a lot of fun and thanks for coming back on to the mick podcast of which you are also named so there you go <laughs> i, I hope you'll come back on to your own podcast
1: I I have partial birthright, my friend. That's right. uh, Even even from the land of uh, of ruse, I'll fight to claim it.
0: You really really could have gone with come from a land down under. You really could have gone there, and no one would have faulted you for it, but you went with the land of
1: ruse. What have I been predictable?
0: (laughs) That's a good point. It's true. Uh, Well, for uh, the McShank podcast, uh, until another day, this has been Ryan.
1: And I'm Clayton. Ryan, it's always a pleasure, and I'll talk to you next time.
0: All righty.